How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jay. And you're listening to Cinema Sci Show Podcast, episode 72. 72. Very nice. Ooh. Very nice. Oh, that was like, you finished my sentence for me. Yeah, that was except re- I just joined in. Yeah. But it's okay, because it was in perfect synchronicity, can like that, our mics will hopefully be. <laughs> well, audience don't know, the last two weeks we've had to go in and fix them before we went up. That's okay, we haven't had any complaints, so that's probably a good yeah. sign. Well, we fixed them. Doc Pock. No, no, Doc Pod. Yeah, Doc Pod. Jeez, what am I talking about? That's uh, <laughs> Jake's Jake's name. My nickname. Should I yeah. change my Facebook nickname to that on your Doc chat? Pod. What is it now, actually? Well, on our group chat. Yeah. Like, I don't think like, it's Jakey Boy. Well, you're Zeke Boy. You're Jakey Boy. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's see. Yeah, I'm still... Okay, I'm still Jakey Boy. Yeah. With I mean, a space. So it's Jakey or Zeke space boy with an eye. Yes. Yeah. That way there's no confusion at any, <laughs> in, at any point. How are you, Jake? I'm... I'm all right. I think... Yeah. I've been we, working. We've had a long pre-show. Like... Yeah, we we just got into a conversation for two hours and we're like, oh, we should probably record our podcast. Yeah. It's almost <laughs> like we're friends outside of the podcast. Whoa. I was going to say, it's like, now now with Jack being our FIFO boy, he's up in the north. It's What other, what other, dad and Nando's, we can't dine in. What other, what other reasons do we have to talk to each other? That uh, is true. You know, the, 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 the... <laughs> no, I mean, it's like, in all honesty, even with everything starting to ease up in Western Australia, there's still not a hell of a lot to do. So just because you can see each other after the first, like the first, oh my God, I haven't seen you in two months. You start to realise that your day-to-day is quite boring. Well, the, the fact that like, we still have a lot of friends who are in different stages of comfortability. We're going out. We've had a lot of storms lately. Yeah. Our house has been blown down. So yeah, that's true. I had a really big branch out the front. Right, fall yeah. Down, so, well, uh, we, had, we had to switch recording one uh, room one week. So your branch didn't destroy our recording. Or... That is true. Yeah. So, I mean... It's interesting. It's, not, it's still pretty quiet right now. Not, not crazy. By next week. Next week. This Saturday. Yeah, the boys. Are you going to be in Freo? Of course, Saturday? I'm going to be in Freo. <laughs> Wait well, two months for it. It's funny because I I've been meaning to have dinner with these these couple of guys for months, and of course we haven't been able to. So we finally got together and we're like, oh, let's you know, let's do this thing, let's catch up, and we picked June sixth as the time to go um, to Sandrino's, and there was like a ninety minute thing we had to be out before such and such, and it was like an, maybe an hour after that that they came out and said June sixth is the day. Yeah. When all these things are open again, says, "Oh, cool." There you yeah, go. I'll be out in Frio also June six, six. So if yeah, you'd like to so catch I'll, up with me, I'll maybe meet you after dinner, maybe then. a date at the Beer Emporium. Oh, I like it. Our little uh, local watering hole. But we're not here to talk about alcohol or getting drunk. We're here to talk that's about shocking. movies, movies, and potentially TV shows. If that's part of your conversation, it is going to oh. be a part of mine. Right. Well, you know what is going to be part of my conversation? Yes, Jake. which is something I don't think I've ever talked about on the show before. I read a book this week. No. Yeah. No. I read a book. You read a whole book. I read. <laughs> I read a whole book. What book in did the you last read? week? I read the Disaster Artist. So this, of course, is Greg Sestro's book on the the making of the room. Okay. Which is James Franco? He's the one who adapted it to the the 2017 film. And I've always been mean to read this book. I've owned it for years, and I finally did. And this book is going to be the center point for all the things that I watched in the past week. Interesting. So we're gonna go from there. Um, what Are I found. Are you talking th- about like the meta cinema elements, or well, per- well, perhaps there's just the so- cinematic apparatus? Well, some of the stuff mentioned in the book 
was like, oh, I should watch this film to get a better understanding of this thing that's referenced here or there. Interesting. Um, and I went on to read other stuff that Greg Sestro has done. So for those who don't know, um, The Room, obviously that notoriously bad film, mm-hmm. Greg Sestro played the famous Mark. The greatest worst film of all time. Right, as, as it, as it so it. claims. Yeah. And uh, what I loved about the book is, obviously I saw the James Franco film when it came out, I was so into it. I was like, oh my God, yes, I got, like I want to watch this film. And I love it, but like the more the more that I rewatched it, and as time went on, I was mm-hmm. like, oh, it feels a little sort of not airbrushed, but it felt very safe in a lot of ways. It felt very lighthearted and fun and approachable. And this book really highlights that. I can I can agree to an extent with that because especially mm-hmm. particularly the final ten to fifteen minutes of the yes, room, yes, uh, definitely are way more romanticized than I imagine the the reality. But mm. also, that levity complements the film rather than hinders it. I think. I think. Okay. Just because we didn't get the the real version of what happened. I mean, I think we would have left actually with a poorer taste in our mouth had it been more realistic. Mm. The ending. Um, I think thematically the film takes what it needs to in the book in terms of, you know, this special friendship where they've sort of needed each other, even though there's all these bumps in the road, making this thing despite all the odds. And it, again, despite all the odds, becoming a phenomenon, not for the reason it was meant. Like, all of those things... I mean, I think that's what the ending is trying to get at, especially. Like, it's trying to represent what the film became rather than what it is in that moment. Mm. So, I think that sort of was a weird sort of like perception into the future sort of situation. Well, yeah, it's, it's condensing the whole, what happened to that film, what would have been over years. Yeah. Um, down into literally one screening where you're right. It's especially, especially not since what you've been to one of those screenings. I've been to, yeah, one of the, the lunar screenings and Greg Sestro was there. So I actually mm. have a signed copy of his best friends volume one script, which is something I also read after reading this. And I'll just say he's a better writer in book form than he is in script form. Okay. So uh, I wouldn't mind talking a bit about that film because I haven't seen it, but I've, I've read the script. And yeah, but I've been to that room screening where it's everyone's gone crazy and throwing spoons and quoting yeah. the movie. And, and I definitely think the ending of Disasters Are Artists is sort of trying to eminent, like, more talk about the commentary on that part. Yeah, it's trying to show, like, this is what it became without yeah. it. The literal, oh, well, this is definitely not what happened at the premiere screening. In fact, the book actually ends with the lights going down, the movie about to begin at the premiere. That's how the book actually yeah. ends. And so it kind of leaves this where the book's written from the standpoint that you know what happens to this film. You know the reception it gets. Way better way of ending it. Um, in a, in but a yeah, it's form. a bit more ambiguous in that weird way, especially the way he talks about Tommy in that moment because it is all warts and all storytelling. And that's what I loved mm-hmm. about the book is that, and yeah, compare it to the movie, which is you know an hour and a half, and it's, it's very, all the corners are sandpapered to be very approachable for a general audience, and it's all lighthearted and happy it's like i preferred reading the book where it's like oh no uh mark oh sorry mark greg's girlfriend has a much more interesting position in the story than just alison brie and she's likable yeah you know it's like that that's that's dave's real life partner yeah exactly it's like that's fine oh look they bumped into brian cranston it's like yeah but i like reading the real story where she was actually a not i don't want to say a bitch but she was very against him doing the movie against helping tommy even Greg himself, he wasn't this guy who, yeah, he was a struggling actor, but the way he's portrayed in the film, it's like, oh, he's very nervous, and he, he looks to Tommy for the confidence, and, oh, I get to be in this movie? Cool. And then the book's like, I did it for the money. Mm-hmm. I did because he was going to pay me a shitload of money. I knew the script was terrible from the moment I read it. 
So but I liked that that's aspect. That's interesting of it. because it's like at the end of the day, that's still a subjective truth, though. We don't know of a hundred percent either or is. Well, he truthful. wrote it. This is great. Exactly. Book, so, so, but it's his accountability of the situation. He right. might have believed the film was actually going to be successful, and then just because it ended up not being, he's taken the other side of the story. I, I I I just don't think that's true because the way it's written, it's like this. It's so much. It's it's Greg's story. This book is he. It's not so much this friendship it's mm. very much here's greg's story and there's a lot of chunk where tommy's just not a part of that story okay. so it's like i kind of buy into that's, that's greg's stardom or or him coming into his own and starring in these random projects and it's like there's still some stuff that's in the film like the agency he gets with and when she comes in and sort of physically analyzes it like that a lot of that stuff is beat for beat but there's entire sections where tommy just disappears for six months and he's like, oh, well, and then this is how my life went in those six months. Okay. So it was very much like, this is Greg's story. He's not as reliant on Tommy. And I do believe all the stuff that happens on set, and there's a lot in the book that doesn't they don't touch in the film. Mm-hmm. And I get why, again, for example, you have the script supervisor played by Seth Rogen. They had like four of those guys. But the film was like, it would just be easier to have the one dude. Well, yeah, it and comes he, back to... Yeah, Sort of that it would be interesting to see something like Edward getting a similar sort of right. If you had like a written perspective of one of the actors on Edward or even Edward himself, because obviously things are often condensed when they're like talking about the cinematic mm. apparatus. They're often condensed to like you know minimize the mass amount of characters. It's sort of like in yeah. Well, they're being more economically from the storytelling, from casting. Yeah. There's no point casting this other dude to be the Mark that was meant to be Mark in the first day, but then he got he got tricked into being fired or something. Like that's a lot of story that the movie doesn't need. It's like yeah. Greg was just involved from the get go. Keep it. Let's simple. just say keep that. It, yeah. Keep it. Yeah. I agree. Like trying to unit. I mean, the, the, what you're trying to do. I mean, that's always going to happen with whatever novel to. Uh, screen like an adaptation, adaptation yeah. happens. Yeah, you try and simplify it too much, you know. I mean, I I watched the Hollywood series on Netflix, and right. you know, obviously that's a heavily talked about sort of discussing the cinematic apparatus of the quote golden age of cinema, the post World War Two, moving into the nineteen fifties. So it's not really the golden age of cinema. The golden age of cinema was like the forties, more than, but it's like late forties, and it's sort of trying to retcon. A lot of... Retcon real life. <laughs> basically, and I really wasn't a big fan of it, and I don't think you would be either, Jake, but it is... Yeah, I'm not interested in seeing it. Is a, it is a similar sort of situation where they take... One character becomes sort of a, like, Swiss Army equipped to handle multiple different roles that would be separated over multiple people over a production. Right. Just for uniform reasons, basically. Like, to keep it the story beats going in the right direction. To keep so. it succinct in a way. Yeah, exactly. You know, like having only one, like one person hit multiple demographics so they can tell multiple different types of stories. Right. Um, and, you know. So, like, example, like, oh, let's have a black gay character and we can cover a bunch of minority stories in this one character. Yeah, exactly. Arc. Okay, I see what you mean. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I just don't think the series itself is well handled at all. I think the moments it, and the problem is it's like, people are like, Oh, well, you know, it's sort of like an alternate timeline, but it's not really because they do bring in real life people that did things in real life. And they sort of 
shove them into the show to give it legitimacy, you know. Mm. And and the fact of the matter is that they 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 try and touch on too many issues. It's the same problem that we have with Invisible Man, only from a series point of view. Just because it's tackling heavy problems doesn't mean the show's instantly good. Right. I think. Um, and it still th- needs to get the execution right. And it loses steam fast, and I just can't can't recommend it. Unfortunately, because mm. um, the you know there's enough in there. You know, if you if they isolated, you know, if you look at films that are around the same timeline, like set in the same timeline, like Trumbo, they focus on one thing. They right. focus on one set of values and how those that that minority group took on the system at the time. You know, for them, it was communist ideology and how they sort of subvert, you know, managed to slot their way into films and still be artists. Still, yeah, kind of defeat the system. Whereas in this one, they're like, you know, every every second character has got some sort of problem or in quotations, like, you know, like, Mm. like, like you said, there is one character that is both African-American and gay. And it's like. I'm not saying that those things can't go together, but then he when he goes on on to win an Oscar, and he rocks up to the uh, Oscars with his boyfriend kissing his boyfriend. Right, and it's like there's a, there's a, there's a line between uh, sort of like you're no longer challenge you're not challenging anything there. In fact, you're insulting some of the people that 15, 16 years later went on to actually push the envelope and challenge right. the system. It kind of discredits them because it's like, look how progressive Hollywood is. And well, it's, even it's, now we've talked about, not even at the start of this year, how the lack of progression, how we don't think another foreign film is going to win an Oscar. Right. That, that parasite was like the success story. Cause you're right. In a way, like if I look at it from that perspective, if that film like, Oh look, the foreign film won best picture in the late forties in, in this Hollywood show, there's like, well, that kind of is disrespectful to the films in the last decade that did sort of, subvert expectations and yeah. it's like oh look Parasite did win the I, fact that I can't remember the silent film that won in 2011 but that was a similar uh, The Artist well. The Artist yeah 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 um, and then the same thing with the the person it's like well the first gay person to win an Oscar it's like what does it say about them if you're just making a show that's like hey look here's a version where it, it predates that yeah well it rec- what's it, it saying by doing everything. that it yeah, basically yeah. goes look uh, this is and I think that the problem is it's not trying to be like, this is an alternate timeline. No, it's very much trying to acknowledge almost like there's the, it's this big underdog story that occurred in this time, this time frame. It's not trying to be a, you know, like a, a wreck. It's trying to retcon history rather than right. like be like, Oh, well in this alternate timeline, these things that happened certain ways. And I think that that's what I don't like about it because it really takes a, you know, it's basically trying to say, oh, well, look, Hollywood was progressive even back then, basically, because they try and add historical figures in there to almost legitimize it. And let's be honest, how many right. people are going to dive in to looking if this show is real or not? I, I almost kind of want to watch it just by having this conversation because like, I want to see if there was an attempt at something because the way, the way it sounds like... I compare it to like Inglorious Bastards where it's like, it's alternative history. Hitler dies in the way that he doesn't die in real life. But it does in a way that sort of respects every single sort of grouping that tried to end the world war. It does it in a respectful way. And like, then yeah. when the Hitler scene comes around, it's it's kind of more played for laughs in that sense. You know? In a way. I mean, there's a shock value to it. 
Yeah. Uh, oh wow, this happened in this. I think it comes back yeah. to even just a better a better comparisons. Once upon a time in Hollywood and how right, tactfully okay. handled that situation was. You know, at the end of the day, the ending is so effective in its alternate timeline that it makes you want to wish that the that that's how life, things happened. But it's not trying to do too much. It's just talking about the death of one woman, an aspiring actress, really. It's not trying to talk... It doesn't talk about racial commentary or political commentary or, mm. or you know, LGBTQ commentary. It's basically just like, what if this tragedy never happened? This one singular tragedy. Other things would have happened, you know? Like, you know, I just... To me, it just felt like it was trying to cram too much in. And the, and the fact that this small little indie film goes on to win... I think it's like six of the eight categories it's nominated in and it's all the minority characters that win and the one character that doesn't win is the white straight guy and it's just sort of like even more like, okay. <laughs> I don't get... To me, I don't get like... The last episode's particularly bad, in my opinion. It's not even good. It's not even... I don't even think there's anything that can save it, really. Right. Like the one, the one character that, for me, was a kind of a standout strong character for their performance um that's completely undone by the last episode's probably Jim Parsons character okay yeah um cuz he plays the Weinstein-esque studio head that's weird casting <laughs> um i mean it's 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 an like i guess it's odd to I don't know why. It's, it's he's a studio head, really. That's all he's playing, really. So yeah, but you got to figure it from the point of view of like, oh, here's the guy who played Sheldon Cooper. I mean, it was I even guess. it was even weird casting Extremely Wicked when he's like sitting there listing all it's these true. terrible, violent crimes. I guess he really and, wants and now to try he's playing and push himself. Weinstein? Yeah, and I, I don't mean, know. I to me, it's like they don't actually touch on the Me Too stuff until the last ten minutes of the whole series. Right. And it really takes a backseat because a lot of the characters on the show are driven a lot of, there's a lot of sex and they're driven. So many of their solo drives it is sex. You have sex to get somewhere. Basically you have sex with this person or that person to the point where literally the main character in the first episode enlists, you know, he's unemployed. So he gets a job at a gas station in which, they make more money by having sex with the people that come to the gas station and they say a what? phrase. There's a lot of I'm like... confused. <laughs> and basically, you know, even in that first episode, it shows that the, one of the biggest flaws with the show is at its core, you know what they're teaching us or they, they're promoting? They're promoting the idea that sex equals power, power equals progression. And, and you can't... There's multiple situations in which characters go, oh, okay, so you want the role? Have sex with me. You want a, a job in in Hollywood? Have sex with me. And then, so it's weirdly promoting that sort of line of behavior. And then in the last 10 minutes, it, it immediately goes down the opposite. Like, I have nightmares about what you made me do. And and yet all these people have gone on to win Oscars and stuff. So it had that weird sort of like mixed message. I, what What's interesting, because that does sort of remind me of the Gwyneth Paltrow situation where I don't think she was... Uh, with her relationship with Harvey Weinstein, I don't think it went that far, but a lot of people would turn around and say, well, you know, she won an Oscar, so she shouldn't complain. So it sounds like it's almost touching on that, which would have been interesting, but it, from the way you're describing it to me, it almost sounds very promotional of all those things, being like, well, well that's just what you got to do. They don't talk about it until the end. Right. It's, it takes such a backseat because it's overclouded by the needing to make this 
show made, uh, the racial inequalities, the LGBTQ inequalities, you know, it, it's too busy trying to jam-pack all that stuff in there that it completely loses the whole, like, t touch with the whole, oh, well, every character is either, a, like, and then they go down a road where they're like, oh, well, every second character is a closet gay character in Hollywood, and it's like, okay... They're just trying to shove too much in the show. I think that's that's the core of what I'm trying to get at. You know, a lot of this stuff was happening, and I know they're trying to condense a lot of the, you know, the, the political navigation, but you can't cover that in seven hours. I'm sorry. There's just, you'd need multiple, normally one of these issues serves, nearly, you know, most two-hour films nowadays. So trying to cram eight or nine different minority issues on top of the most contemporary Me Too movement stuff, in just seven, you know, it's probably not even seven hours, it's probably five and a half, six hours of content. Mm. You just can't do it. You just, it just, because then it ends up, you you get diminishing returns on all of them. I'm, I, I wouldn't go as far to say that you can't do it. I'm sure there's a way to do it. I'm just, it sounds like the execution here is very distracting and overbloated and poor. But I, uh, I really want to watch it myself now, to be honest. <laughs> You're kind of yeah. selling me it in a way. There are like, and I think the big things are like, you know, unfortunately it just has, uh, like relatively flat photography. It's not super imaginative. It just sort of relies on its period piece, hmm. uh, set dressing to give it a free pass for lack of cinema. There's a couple of one takes, but you know, I was talking off the air with a couple of like, uh, you off know, the air. <laughs> yeah, a couple, like, a couple people about, like, you know, like, I don't like any of the 13 Reasons Why seasons, but at least I can point to parts, sequences in 13 Reasons Why, at least in the first two seasons. But I'm like, there was some cinematic flair in that. There yeah, is, there that's are, the weird thing about first. It, it looks so good. Yeah. Most of the time. It looks really good. You know, I, I, that's so weird, the thing about that. So when things are so flat or they're just nothing more than period set pieces, look at the period set piece. Isn't this cool that it looks like the 1950s and yet there's nothing they're doing with the camera or they're doing with the lighting? Um, you know, you start to pick holes in the story. You know, at least there were times in, in 13 Reasons Why I was getting caught up, at least the first season, you get caught up in sort of the some of the shoddy writing because at least what they're doing with the camera is interesting. Mm. And, you know, I, I think back to the episode, I think it's eight and there's like a one take in a hall, uh, hallway. Uh, yeah. So second, uh, it's probably the second season, but yeah, there's that episode in time. Cause it wasn't even just the one take. It was like, mm. there was so many individual shots, like whether it was like a vintage shot or just the way they played with medium close-ups. I was like, wow, this is like weirdly impressive. Yeah. And it's like, it's just a shame that the script sucked. <laughs> so okay oh, that's a big talk about Hollywood I thought it was a good bridge right good okay there, but you, if you well, would like to t finish off with the disaster artist well what was interesting to finish off with the book is there were two things it, in addition it did that the film didn't that was really interesting it's non-chronological for starters so the mm -hmm. film actually starts on the night before the first day of shooting but then each second chapter cuts back to Greg's growing up and uh, meeting Tommy and everything that happens there so it actually I like the pacing better than in the film, where the film was like, oh, well, the second act's fun. That's when all the funny set stories happen. The first act and third act are like, eh, iffy, so it kind of solves that problem in the book. And the other one is that they have a lot of quotes from particular movies, and th this is where it gets into me wanting to read or to watch the external links to this. So okay. there are two films in particular Greg quotes a lot in the book. It's sort of the, the header of the chapter. 
and the two films are The Talented Mr. Ripley and Sunset Boulevard. So I made sure to watch both of them in the last week. Okay. Um, particularly Mr. Oh, The Talented Mr. Ripley, because it is sort of a 1999 Matt Damon. It's actually a great cast, but um, a film about trying to sort of take someone's identity. And you you, you really like it. It's Jude Law. Jude Law's in it as well. And he's, okay. he's really good in it. But it was interesting to watch that with the context of the disaster artist how Greg talks about watching that movie in a theater and being blown away by the performances or whatever. But then he's tying the story elements to his real life relationship with Tommy. And I was like, that was really cool. So it's good to sit down and it's on stand now, if you want to watch it um, and to watch it with those eyes and be like, all right, well, let's look at performances and the interrelationship stuff going on. And like, it's a good, you got like Kate Blanchett and Philip Seymour Hoffman and stuff in it as well. It's really good. Um, if not a little long in the tooth. And I also appreciate direction where everything in the frame is like utilized. Mm-hmm. There's always something in each corner of the frame. There's always something in the forefront, the background, like the frames being used to perfection in that film. And I love that. And the other one was Sunset Boulevard, which I watched this morning and I was blown away by this film. So 1950, I think two or three years before Singing in the Rain. And this is virtually the dark version of Singing in the mm-hmm. Rain, where that one was more directly because it's a very Hollywood-esque story much like Hollywood we were just talking about in 1950, except, again, much darker, more realistic tone of how you have sort of this fading actress who um, ends up sort of convincing this uh, hack writer to stay in with her, and it gets kind of creepy how he has to stay with her and, and work on her book and turn it into a script, but then he starts forming relationships with these other people. And I actually, I don't want to go into too much story-wise, but just the way it represented its themes of like the fading stardom and all of those things yeah, I was like, yeah. this is shockingly good i love it and even like the end like i'm ready for my close-up that kind of the, the famous quote or whatever and I, it just ended it's a black and white film and i was like man this is so fucking good it's see yeah, and, and you know that's that's my i think it's really good that we seem to have a real focus this week hollywood no it's good on like the cinematic apparatus because i do think it ties in a lot with the film of the week that we'll talk about and mm. Um, I think it's all correspondence, so I think that um, that's definitely a film that I need to watch. I know it's it's, it's sort a, of a it's so good. I, it's on your probably that hundred scratch at list. It's right? actually not shocking. Wow, it's not. I only watched it because Greg quotes the movie a lot on the book. I I need to go back and read the book with the quotes in mind now. Yeah, that'd be interesting. But um, that's the only reason I watched it. It wasn't even on my scrapbook. Which interesting. We're gonna start knocking off that scrapbook soon because next week's film's on there. And I need to watch Groundhog Day, which is on there. And I've, Lord, yeah, I mean, predominantly in the films this week, I haven't watched too many, but the the theme was very sort of uh, a mixture of classic Hollywood, but in particular, mostly Robert Redford films, which is right, one of our leading men uh, with the film discussion this week. Uh, I watched uh, The Last Castle, which is oh, okay. a, a sort of a prison film. Um, that has a very young Mark Ruffalo in it. Oh, uh, what year is this? 2001. Uh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Relatively cool. young. Um, yeah. And uh, stars, like I said, Robert Redford and James Gandolfini. Um, and, you know, it was fine. It was just a fine film. It, um, <laughs> it was fine. has some cliche. It's very over-patriotic, very pro-America. Because um, it's about, like, uh, it's a military prison, so everyone in it has been court-martialed and okay. sentenced to military prison and Oof. Robert Redford is a military general and uh, a turn hood yeah it's always the the us the prison versus the prison guards right 
Um, I watched Midnight Run, which actually is a Robert De Niro right, film. Right, yeah, I saw this and I was like, holy shit, you actually watch like, like one of the classic ones. Yeah. You usually watch like stuff that's on Netflix, you're like, oh, I guess I gotta see this, and nope, that was a dud. <laughs> no, um, yeah, so I did a pretty good, it was a pretty classic week. Yeah, um, I was like, ooh. Midnight Run, uh, by, I really enjoyed, it's a really good sort of caper road movie about right. um, Robert De Niro's Bounty Hunter, and... Uh, Not a deer hunter? No, and uh, <laughs> Charles Grodin, who is the person that he has to bounty hunt and take across the country. Mm-hmm. It's very funny. Um, it really premise. shows... Uh, for De Niro at the time, it would definitely show a lot of diversity in his sort of... It's good to see him breaking away from Scorsese films. Mm. Um, and just to see that he... like I think back then, definitely, there was less funny man uh, De Niro films. So uh, it was good to see him as a younger man sort yeah, of exercising he's... a bit more of... Uh, I don't really see him trying to be funny. When I, when I picture him as funny, it's usually like the old man De Niro and the you know, meet the fuckers yeah. types of films. Las Vegas, sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like Las <laughs> Vegas. I, I know it's a, not a popular opinion, but uh, just just me. Uh, and yeah, I watched Bush, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, but I'll right. touch on that more in the second half oh, of the show. Oh, I like because that. Because they're like directed that. by the same person. Yes, yes so. they are. And I know last week you teased that you were maybe going to do it for your 50s vote. you Or 60s vote, sorry. But you didn't. No. So. I'm glad. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad. Because I think it's more appropriate to be talking about it this week on the show than next yeah, week. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that at the end of the show. Well, I mean, that's pretty much everything I've seen. The only, the only thing I might point out with Sunset Boulevard is it does the immediate rest thing, where it kind of shows the ending at the beginning of the film. And... The D-A-B-C. Yeah, exactly. Story but, time. um... Wouldn't it be D-A-B-C-D? Yeah. yeah. But I think they Whatever. just ignore the other D. <laughs> because C is sort oh, of a I, continuation I into D. Yeah. Right. I would repeat the D if we see the scene again. Which is what me, happens me, here. Me, 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 me. Wait, 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 wait. Hey, yeah. I'm not criticizing you. I'm criticizing the rule. You're criticizing the system. <laughs> Society's fault. Get rid of the system. Um, yeah, Todd Phillips loves us. Now, the only other thing I'd say about Sunset Boulevard is um, when it got to that ending again, like... It wasn't the kind of immediate res where you forget about it. You're like, yeah. oh, what happened here? It like, it's almost too obvious. So halfway through the film, like, I guess this is gonna happen to this character, and this is gonna happen to this character. So it was a little like on the nose with that stuff, but I still love the film. It's yeah, amazing. No, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um. Well, I mean, that's frankly everything I've seen in the last week. So. Well. Yeah. I think it's time for uh, us to bridge into our career section. Then Ooh. we actually have some good career news. As <laughs> <laughs> opposed to terrible career. Yeah. Our careers are down the toilet. No, it's um, it's actually pretty mm. awesome. Um, so what happened? What happened the other day, Zeke? Uh so what was this Monday? Was it Monday? This happened? I guess they they announced this way later than all meant to, and they still haven't announced all of the things yet. Well, as we know, both Jake's documentary. Or Clicker X, Productions, X Rental. I mean, X Rental, <laughs> uh, and Cradle, the film that we Cradle. both made uh, with Jack, um, uh, were both in the Static Film Festival. You and uh, well, we found out earlier this week that uh, Cradle, at the very least so far, was uh, <laughs> announced for the best student short. I like you say so far as if they're going to take it away from us. No, I was referring more to they haven't announced the Doco prize. Yet. Oh right, yeah, so we, yeah. So they they've announced their um sort. Of, I guess the best of, I think it's called it's just called the the short student film award and then the short horror. No, is it even called award? No, it's short. Yeah, it is. It yeah, is okay. An award. Um, 
But anyway, yeah, so Cradle won the best student film, which is very awesome to see. We woke uh, up to that short news, Short student we? film, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. So. Um, yeah, so it was really awesome. They messaged me and I... Oh, they actually like messaged you? Yeah. Oh, that's good. I just saw like the, the, the thing on the social media. No. Um, and because I had to ask about if they were going to send a PNG Laurel to oh, update it. Oh, right, right, right. Gotcha. Um, you got to do that now, don't you? Yeah, yeah. They'll send, they'll send it when they announce everything. Ah, fair. Well, that's the thing. They're still going to announce Doco, which I'm, of course, waiting on for X-Random. And drama. I, and drama, yeah. I don't, I don't think... Well, it's funny because we're in drama as well for Cradle. I think I, I doubt they're going to give it no, both I awards. I, I think there are plenty the of dramas they could pick. Yeah, outside of picking Cradle a second time. <laughs> but they said some really nice things. So, um, and obviously now that they've taken it down off their online festival, you can catch Cradle on both Clicker Productions and ZKJ Productions. That's the one. Um, but, yeah, uh, it was really cool. It was yeah, really cool. That was a good. Cool a... Yeah, because I woke up to that. Yeah, that was I our saw... uh, that's our first ever award. Yeah, we're Zeke, we're award winning filmmakers now. Yeah, we did it. Cool. <laughs> Can we retire now? Are we done? Um. Yeah, I think that's it. No more. No <laughs> the, more films. The start of the episode. This is actually the final episode. <laughs> I was gonna say at the uh, start of every episode. I'm like, oh, we're almost there. Or which? What do I? Are saying? we there now? Are we there now? I think we've made it. No, honestly, it's really we're really proud of it. Um, we really enjoyed making that film. It was a really was one of the easiest shoots we've ever done. Um, we did it all in a night. The easiest shoot one we've ever done. Probably one of the more fun ones we did too. It was very, uh, very gorilla, very chill. Because uh, I was talking to someone about, I think it was Damo actually. Yeah. So I don't think he'd ever seen it, so I sent him a link the other day. Okay. I was like, he's our has our gorilla award winner. I I just keep putting the word gorilla in there. No, oh, that's cool. <laughs> no, you know it, it was I mean. a real, it was a really fun experience, and it was one of the more enjoyable ones that we made over the course of our mm. university journey. Um, and yeah, we we we're really proud as um Not to, to take on the challenge i think um i don't think it it's had a lot of talking about on this show i don't think it would have had a lot more well, talking Cradle, about it, it predates our podcast by like a month maybe yeah i mean uh, the interesting thing is i wrote it when i wrote it it obviously it involves the, the premise is uh, a teenager finds out that she's pregnant and she runs away from home because she's for fear of judgment of what her family... Did you just base this on my life story, Zeke? Um, yeah, 100%. When I was 17? I mean, it was really, it was just a... It, it was less a commentary about the pregnancy and more a commentary about the family dynamic. I yeah, think. well, it's it's about the value system with your family and... Through, you know, through tumultuous times. times. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's why free white dudes were allowed to... To direct well, <laughs> and that was one of the more interesting things when the idea was pitched because it was in our directing class mm. that I told you two about it and we were going to do that film together and our uh, tutor was a, a woman. She was like, how do three... Uh, she did be, say that. To she be said fair, three... Glenn would uh, probably ask the same thing. Yeah. No, we weren't offended by being asked the question. Yeah. No, I just I just mean like, I think any tutor would ask the same question. Yeah. How do three men... Yeah. Uh, out of three men. Why do three men want to tell this story? Yeah, tell that story, and obviously, you know, we weren't. It was a good question. <laughs> it was a very good question. I think we answered it pretty well. Yeah. I mean, I seemed to, the, the reason we we wrote the story was to more comment on the dynamics of uh, a teenager parent relationship and mm-hmm. how that. I mean, in particular it was actually the relationship between my sister and who was the main character and my mum. So. 
that was actually the <laughs> dynamic. That, yeah. Um, so that's probably why it comes out so well. Obviously, I placeholder the mum with the dad character, a young dad character, because that was we wanted Mr. JT in our film. Yeah, we did. We owed him that much. Um, no, and also <laughs> like it just sort of made. I liked that dynamic more because uh, I think it does subvert expectation to an extent because often um, even grandparent characters, the dads are generally portrayed as the more distant Mm. ones and not as, as, I mean, it was obviously a product of the time too. Obviously we didn't have any actress friends in the same age length that we could just call up to do a quick role, but I do think well, having we were the, clever I mean, in getting the voice only, which I think a lot of people won't really think about. They're like, oh, I guess that was just a voice. Yeah. yeah. We didn't have like someone cast to be of age appropriateness. And we also didn't want to go. You're right. It was, a, it was a very small gorilla one night shoot where we didn't want to go out on casting calls for all this stuff. It's like, well, we'll just cast our friend here. This person will fit this role. Let's do that. So yeah, yeah. The, the sound mixing was huge in that film, mm. like getting that right. I will um, say that knowing what her voiceover sounded like, the filming conditions, because I think she was doing something else and we had a friend grab her audio or whatever, her audio did not sound very good. And I don't know what she did to it to get it up to par with JT's It was a audio. lot of mixing. It, yeah, I know. I was like, holy crap, you can't tell she, how bad she this She recorded was. So the the voice of the mother character was uh, Jess McCann, and who was the, the leading lady in Home Again. And we just got right, her to... Right. Rachel McCann, sorry, Ben, with pardon. I was going to say, Rachel, yeah. It's been a long, <laughs> long few years. Um, and, <laughs> you say a long morning. Uh, yeah, and we got her to do the, the voice. And yeah, it was in a completely different... Because we used... JT's recording was on your uh, R26, I'm pretty right, sure. Right, yeah. So we, so we got like a proper like, mic up his Whereas nose. hers was on a phone. <laughs> and yeah. a phone? Yeah. Jesus. So had to test my muscles a little bit, but thankfully... <laughs> Having them talk as if they were in another room did help a lot, because then you can do a certain amount of deterioration. Well, yeah, it's just the amount of like static and noise that you got rid of. Mm. That's not evident at all in the final film, I don't think. Yeah, it turned out turned out really nice. Um, yeah, I'm really like that was one of the films that we were really proud about, and mm. when we made it, just cultivating it in such a short amount of time was really cool, and it's nice for other people to recognise that. There we go. So pretty yeah. beautiful. Not well, talking about a film that's two years old or whatever. <laughs> about a year and a half. A year and a half. Yeah. Like, that was the thing. That, that, uh, we've talked about this as well because again, this is one of those films that we, you know, we've already had it available online and people have seen it. But we're like, you know what? Let's just try a couple more. You know, spe- festivals, especially yeah. this year with a lot of online focused festivals, you can't really have festivals festivals in a physical form. No, exactly. Um, so it worked in that regard, and we'll see. I mean, I'm glad X Rental got in, but. I, I don't know when they're going to do the Docco announcements. And I, I honestly, I don't expect it to win. That'll be a genuine surprise. I was, <laughs> with with winning student films or Cradle, I was not really surprised. It was a nice surprise to see it, but I was also like, yeah, that's fair enough. <laughs> it's putting it mildly. I was like, I think that's a fair win, but um, we'll see with X Rental. The only thing, the only other thing I want to talk about this week is mm-hmm. uh, in the last week, we released our second, on Clicker Productions, we released our second episode of the ability advocacy podcast yes so this one's about uh, matthew cameron with usher's syndrome so if you want to learn a bit about that this is the first podcast i've ever been involved in without actually being on the mic so i was there just to man the audio levels and make sure everything was smooth oh so that was pretty cool did not 
did not realize that. That's a, something different. No, well, that's the thing. So I went there and I set up the mics and made sure the mix was good. And then, because, you know, you listen to Joe Rogan, it's like he's got his Jamie there making yeah. sure the audios are good. I mean, we're, we're, we're both pretty knowledgeable enough. We don't need a third person to just check the audios. No. It's like we're pretty yeah. confident enough that. Doing this now for three years between two shows, right? Right, yeah, yeah. So. Blue Velvet. Back in the day. Yeah, and I did life lessons too. Oh, yeah. The I guess four episodes. It's weird because that's technically a podcast, but it was so, they were bite-sized, weren't they? That was the point, though. Yeah, like 10-minute things. Made them deliberately under 15 minutes was right. the, the key. I'd love to go back and do that show because that was a really good premise for life a show. Life lessons. Um, Would you bring James back? Oh, I mean, if he was down for uh, uncensored content, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Point of that. Uh, that show not you... sure going into my teaching profession doing a show like Life Lessons would That's be valid point. anymore. A show but like this would be fine. You're going to have to change your surname on Facebook. Yeah. Yeah, dun, exactly. Dun, dun. You're going to have to do... Like when they do middle names, right? That's what they do. Well, that that's why... Um... I just put my... My privacy settings are really high oh, okay. on Facebook and Instagram. But because you're like a mate on Facebook, then you see them all. But Yeah, well, exactly. We're like friends uh, or whatever. Yeah. The um, It's funny because that's... For the bringing it back to the um, ability advocacy, that's the main reason uh, I elected to only mention Camilla, who's the host, Camilla. I only elected to mention her first name because she is still a teacher. So I was like, oh, let's let's keep it vague. <laughs> yeah, like, I haven't I haven't specifically talked to her about it, but I mean, I, that's I've a kept really, it just that's the first an educational name. podcast. It comes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it comes back to censorship. You don't as long as you're talking about something mm. educational and you're not swearing every two seconds, then you. You're fine. Yeah, exactly. Pretty well, much. I just want to be safe on that front. And I, I, I will say, because it is an educational podcast and we're dealing with more sensitive subjects, we here we just spit whatever the hell we want. On uh, that show, I have to be a little more meticulous with stuff I have to sometimes edit out because mm-hmm. this thing isn't appropriate for this thing. Um, yeah, the language was... is way more particular yeah, when you're talking right. about sensitive subjects like that. So it's interesting for sure. Well, no worries. I think it's time for us to bridge into our film of the week. That's the one. We're moving into the 1970s with our cinema sideshow oh. countdown through the decades retrospective. We're smashing through these, eh? But Jake, what are we watching? <laughs> this week on the show, we're watching The Sting. She picked him clean. He never missed him. Remember that Sting experience? How good you felt? Now, The Sting, winner of seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture, is back. Chicago was the place to be in 1936. In those days, the big con was a dying art, until a first-class grifter on the lam from the FBI and a young gaffer from Joliet joined forces to con the Big Mick. He's not as tough as he thinks. Neither are we. Swindler Johnny Hooker, whose partner is butchered by the henchman of Donnie Lonigan, a ruthless crime boss, seeks to take revenge. And aiding him is Henry Gondry, a con man evading the FBI. Hmm. Did you like my reading, though? I did. Nailed it. Like First fake... time. <laughs> First time. So Why do these loglines need surnames? I'm just saying. I'm just saying, man. I mean... It's bad on the ton. It's good in a, in a caper film where there's about 20 million characters. Um, are there twenty million? Not really. There's there? a lot of people, but like people. predominantly, there's probably about ten characters, maybe. Ten. Yes, yeah, true. I mean, there's 10, 15. There's really sort of three in the main mix of things. A lot of them you don't have to remember their names; you just have to remember their roles. Yeah, that's probably. But that's like most caper films. It's like, could you name 
Ocean's Eleven. All the Ocean's Eleven. Okay, no. Exactly. I can name the actors, but that's the whole point. I mean, yeah, you got your stars in this film, but it, it's not like Ocean's Eleven where there's so many stars. Like, well, that's just how I'm going to remember who's who. No, and that's what makes this... I, what I like about this film. So, obviously, mm. um, as I touched on earlier in the show, this film uh, was directed by the same person that did Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Um... Mr. Which, George Roy Hill. Yeah, which was the... Uh, this was sort of... Uh, not really a, s- a spiritual sequel, but more a acting duo sequel, I guess. Yeah, it was bringing uh, those same guys back um, to another film. <laughs> uh, from what I see from George Roy Hill, he really likes Paul Newman um, mm. and has multiple films with Paul Newman. Who but... doesn't like Paul Newman, though? Jeez, he's amazing, <laughs> isn't he? Like, You know, it's funny. I watched this film as a... A younger lad, maybe when I was like twelve. A weird lad, and I loved That's it. That's interesting. And I loved it. And watching it again this morning after finishing Butch Cassidy, I just I like and approaching with a critical eye. You always get worried that the rose tinted goggles are going right. To it gets in the way, yeah. But no, this film is just really good. I mean, there's a reason it won what seven Oscars. It's which it proudly talks about a lot. Yeah, because I bought the DVD. Special edition for this at JB. Mm. It's a little harder to find the Blu-ray for it, but it's just plastered all over. Winner of seven Academy Awards. Can you blame it though? I yeah, great. No. <laughs> if I had won seven Oscars, I'd be like, can we put that on the DVD cover? Yeah. <laughs> I just think okay, there are a lot of things to talk about with this film, mm. um, and I think the acting duo is a good start point. Um, these two are like the the LDC Brad Pitt. 70s edition basically you i can see that yeah they've totally. got like impeccable chemistry with each other they bounce off each other in like a seamless that's both entertaining funny but then and serious points they cover right. they cover every point and this is really shown it's shown a lot in here but in in butch cassidy and the sundance kid the roles are sort of reversed paul newman's the way more uh, I mean, they're charismatic, but he's he's way more well, not necessarily reckless, but nicer. The okay. Sundance, like Sundance, played by Robert Redford, is the way more harsher one. Gotcha. And the more, uh, yeah, he's just the more like grumpier sort of one. Whereas in this one, you know, the opening scene with Paul Newman is him passed out in a bath. You know, <laughs> so it's definitely a more way rugged. more is. A role reversal and I yeah. think that is critical because obviously given the success of Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid which led to the whole Sundance Film Festival being mm. birthed out of it um, and was the breakout role for Robert Redford in particular um, I think that role reversal was important because then it really shows sort of you know what we can you know the range we can see the characters mm. you know. well, it's keeping it fresh as well yeah, exactly. You know, if, if there was another film with Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio in a few years where they were the two headmen, you, you wouldn't want them to play similar roles as what they did in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, surely. You'd want them to play something, like, both doing different characters, yeah. right? What's well, interesting, that one in particular, because obviously Leo's sort of the, the the top man of the two, sort of financially, and they're friends, but it's like Brad Pitt also has the physicality of him. So I think they, they meld it pretty well in there. While in this one, it's very clearly here is the guy and here's like the master. Here's the guy teaching him the lessons of the old, bringing the new in to replace him almost like, yeah, I like that. It's definitely it. more even keel in yep. Butch Cassidy and Sundance kid. They're very much 50, 50 partners. Like mm. one of them 
is this awesome gunslinger and the other one's actually never killed someone, but he's the brains of all the operation. Um, Cheeky, cheeky. um, Obviously, like we said, they're both directed by the same people, so uh, same guy, uh, George Roy Hill, was it? Yep. Um, And yeah, I can definitely see um, similarities between the two. He loves almost making films that are like storybooks. Uh, yeah, you get a bit of that in the structure of, of this story as well. I mean, from everything, from chapter headings mm. to page peel transitions. The transitions were weird. That was a weird thing. I mean, you know, I think it's really just selling the fact that this is almost like you're reading a book. Yeah, that's true. They do the, they do like the circular one, where like we go through the circle. That oh, was like a strange the, one. The, the circle wipe? Yeah, yeah, like the Star Wars circle wipe. And I know this predates I mean, Star Wars, but it's, in, it's this is interesting. Very, that's very classic Hollywood, though, to do wipes. And, right. And Keep, so, give the cuts interesting. In I mean, this the, this film especially definitely ties to sort of... I know it's it's ironically, it's, it's set in one of the golden age of Hollywood in the 70s, but it, it's probably more reflection of 40s and 50s films. Well, I mean, it takes place in the Depression period of, like, mid-30s. Yeah, mid-30s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but if you look at the way it's constructed from things like chapter headings or, or particularly mm. transitions or the soundtrack, which we'll yes, touch yes, on yes, to yeah. great, in greater detail, it's almost like a 70s film that's reflecting a 40s film. Mm. Um, whereas I think a lot of 70s films are more defined by their gritty realism, whereas this is very much like a... It's a caper film. Yeah, it's it's definitely more fun than, say, A Taxi Driver. <laughs> <laughs> for sure and I mean this is a 70 what is this a 73 film yep. and yep. Taxi, so Taxi Driver is four years after this you know Godfather is three? I think Godfather is 73 that's a good point actually yeah let me double check it yeah double check that but it's funny you mentioned that the storybook aspects of the way they have the little title cards I actually took a lot of those elements more no, as an oh, hmm? 73 oh there you go perfect. Or 72 actually sorry oh yeah I think it's 72 then part 2 is 74 I yeah. think that sounds right but definitely in the ballpark for sure I took those elements of the film out as more of an ode to the silent film era, and especially because of the music. I mean, there's that scene, I don't want to get too far into like specifics, but there's a scene where Robert Redford's sort of jumping between the train tracks. I was like, this is Charlie Chaplin. This is like the early Silent Hill. I think that's a way better com- analysis. Like, yeah, like comedic sort of movements and jumping and There will be a Charlie thing. Chaplin film that's going up for, oh, the, going up for vote. the future little season. I like that. i, I got to check because there's two Charlie Chaplin films in my scratch-up poster. Okay. So i got to see if the one you picked is one I of think those it two. Is. Probably, I think yeah. it is. I know Modern Times is one of them. Is that not the one you picked? No, I picked... Okay. I'm not going to say the one I picked. No, I don't. <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get there in the next few but weeks. But, Jake, I haven't even asked you. Did you like the film? Right, so, yeah, obviously you saw it as a wee lad when you were 12. Yes. I saw it for the first time a couple of days ago. Yeah, I really love this film. I think... What's so special? Doesn't make you want to dress up in suits, <laughs> doesn't it? Like it just makes you want to like they make suits cool. Yeah, like, pretty much any because like you know Sunset Boulevard and stuff. Like I'm on a roll with these types of films. Yeah, suits are back in fashion. I want to wear a suit everywhere I go. I want to wear a pinstripe suit. <laughs> oh, so good. You got your BB gun with that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I do love this film, and again, I think I think it's wonderful in the odes to the the silent films and, and those little things and how it sort of correlates. The, I love the exploration of the con man. And I was watching the bonus features on the DVD and they do talk about how it is sort of this little secret society or this culture of, of thieves and con men that we don't 
Not that we don't see it often, but especially in the 70s, they're like, well, what? Well, let's explore this. This seems it's interesting. It's sort of got like that, um, obviously, in a totally different genre, mm. but it's got the John Wick-esque, uh, like, law-building okay. aspect. Okay, I see you what know? you mean, yeah. Like, there's, there's this whole hidden world, and, you know, the things like the coins in John Wick, but in this, it's like, they just sort of look at each other and rub their nose, and <laughs> it's like, that's enough. The universe was like... It, universe- tell me that's when it originated. The whole nose flick, the little subtle... I mean, communication. I, I just, I, I don't, don't know. I don't know, but <laughs> I, I would love to say that that was the like the original film to do one of those sort of gestures, Little nose flicks, yeah. But it, it's sort of that's like, it's like the thing where it's after obviously the earlier events of the film, like you said. In this is not really spoiler territory. It's in the premise, uh, in the the synopsis you yeah, just I, read. When I reread it, I was like, oh shit, that's right. It's mentioned. Um, in the so obviously, yeah. when Hooker's partner's dead and he has to look out for that was find, really sad. Yeah. Um, and really you have to sad. find, and they, and that's just one scene that sets up their <laughs> dynamic, and then it makes the death still carry weight, which yep. I really like. Um, and obviously, when he goes and finds Gondry, and then Gondry agrees to help, um, and there's sort of that montage of him assembling the team, but it's just like he's sort of like, oh man, there's con man everywhere, and then like there are scenes <laughs> where they cut back to some of the original guys recruiting other like smaller guys just to be in the background it's just like little giveaways and it's like oh this is just like a whole network like who did you work for oh right. i worked for this gangster i worked for this gangster <laughs> it's a really I, cool i like um it's it's not my highlight scene it will come up later is when he's covering his nose but it's essentially a job interview yeah and he's like oh i've done this i've done i've got his name here i think it's joe yeah it's uh, uh hooker's friend oh my computer yelled at me that's okay. It's a hooker's a, friend. Hooker's friend, gotcha. But yeah, you're right. The culture of like they're getting hired for these little things, and it's something that I thought about because I said this to you off the show. But what what I love about yes. this is it's so uh, it reminds me of Better Call Saul in a lot of ways because Better Call Saul is about the comment, especially those first like the first mm-hmm. season or two. And I remember jumping in, and being like, "Oh, I bet there's a reference because there's a lot of movie references in Saul, and there is one. So if you watch the it's the fourth episode of the whole show." If you look at... There's a con that's happening where this guy's trying to take a wallet. And if you look in Marco's wallet, he's, the name on his ID is actually Henry, Henry Gondry. Which that's I was like, pretty good. That's clever. I was like, I like that a lot. Um, but, I mean, I've been watching Peaky Blinders, which is okay. a completely tonally different... But the premise is there. And that's set in the early 20s. But right, there's right. enough similarities there. I mean, it's all about racketeering and capers and sort of what have you but it takes a completely different tone and i sort of like the light-hearted tone that this film takes oh my yeah it works perfectly for it, it. it like like it has injections of color and i like that like more so than what actually probably was the product of the time you know this is very much a a, a light-hearted caper film mm. you're 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 meant to feel is, and that's what makes it more fun, I think. And it's it does come back to things like the title cards and, like you said, those those tr- those tributes to silent film and the 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 score, which is just a similar motif. That also the whole reminds film. me of silent films. Yeah, yeah, like the piano, blues. where there are variations on different characters, but it's all under the same sort of. <laughs> and it'll get in <laughs> your been, head. You've been singing it all day. It gets in your head. Yeah, like, oh. it stays in your head. You got the vinyl. I do. You showed me. I'm very happy to have it. That was a surprise. Like, oh shit, they got the image on there. Yeah, we, we were talking as well about how on the poster it's like all sort of hand drawn. Like it's yeah. not like a screenshot from the film. And like, 
and I was I don't know, but I was like, I wonder if certain actors just have assigned artists to do them in all the posters. I love that that the, the yeah. design of all of the posters and stuff. It just looks so. It probably does. It does tribute more to that that silent cinema stuff where mm. there were less cinematic shots or shots from films. It was yeah. more. This is just words, and then like it looks more like a carnival act rather than, which is probably why it's really interesting that like characters like Gondry live live near live and work on a merry-go-round. It right, sort of adds okay. to that almost like this is like a weird sort of like theme park attraction experience. I like I like that you phrase that because that is kind of how films started. Almost like these little attractions you go on the tent and they have the little film reel and stuff. So yeah. it's almost that's is what it is, I suppose. You know? Yeah, I mean. I don't know about you, and it's going to be really interesting to ask you this question. I have okay. the DVD over there, but I... Where the is it? Film, uh, it's just sitting on over there. Um, it's under Dog Day Afternoon. I think so. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it's... Uh, the viewing format that I get is... It's a letterbox. I got four, three to four. Or so you four got to the, three. So the square. Yeah, the square. Okay, so I got a letterbox. I had, like, widescreen as oh, letterbox. Oh, Okay. Um, you know, I noticed that a lot with Kubrick because it was like a t- it was like an anniversary or special edition DVD. I noticed with Kubrick when I watch a lot of his films on DVDs, like the revival edition, that's all in in four by three as well. Interesting. So you keep watching these um widescreen versions of films that I'm not getting. Oh no, wait, no, sorry, no, I might be thinking of Sunset Boulevard. I'm pretty sure it was widescreen as well. Mm. I'll have to. I'll show it to you after. But it was a, It's an interesting. It's one of those letterbox ones where it's like black around the whole screen and then it's got like a little rectangle in the screen. Interesting. It is very interesting. Okay. Yeah, doesn't the, like, uh, it goes away pretty quick. Like you get The used... formatting's weird in these old like movie revivals. Yeah. Um, obviously, so, I mean, I don't know how much more you want to talk about before jumping into spoilers. Um, I think I'll just... I'll get, before we jump into spoilers, I think I'll finish my point. The reason I brought up the soul stuff, obviously the reference is really cool. Yep. And the way that it is in Soul, it's like it's almost as if the character of Jimmy McGill watched this film and was inspired by this film. That's almost how it's like that show takes that tone. But what I always found interesting, I would ask this question watching that show, and I asked it again watching this film, is the value of how far would a con man take a con in terms of their own financial investment to get to take money off someone else? Uh, well, actually, I have two questions, but we'll stick with this one. Where they set up this entire... I guess this is kind of in spoiler territory in terms of the plot where to get this one dude they pretty much recreate this entire like room this racketeering yeah yeah. just this completely fake operation they got going Mm -hmm. all in service of just fooling this one dude and that you're right they've hired all these people to go on they've spent money on the room itself and they've had this thing going on for a while to get to the end goal so I'm like I always ask that question how much money would you invest in a con Based on how much profit, it's net like how much money. How much back. money does Ocean's Eleven? How much do they spend in order to right in order to pull that? the con off? I mean, at the end of the day, like it's interesting. It, well, I think he puts he puts a bet down for half a million, right towards the yeah. End of I mean, the film. at that point, I was like, okay, fair enough. <laughs> and half a million, yeah. Half at that a point, mil. you're paying off. And if you think from the perspective of of um, Robert Shaw's character. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, was it is Doyle Lonigan? Yeah. Um, 
you know, and he's getting four to one odds, so he's supposed to get a two million payout. But then there's motivation there too. Well, they've constantly proven that, oh, this is right. If you bet on this, you will. But it's also, he, he doesn't really want to win the money for the sake of winning, like winning the money. He wants to win it to piss off, Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously um, Paul Newman's not even his well his character but it's also the the the, the role he's playing it's a bit of an ego the, there's a lot punch, of extra yeah. names because they're, they're like you got hooker and and um gondry is their actual names but then they use aliases oh, yeah, too that, yeah yeah it's true um i think kelly and i can't remember um uh shaw shaw mm. i think actually is um gondry's alias that oh, he just uses. robert shaw <laughs> I think that that's sort of the... That might have been what, what it was. Yeah, I think it might be. But, yeah, so we're going to stick with Gondry and Hooker because, or Redford and Newman because there's there's a lot of extra names. It's sort of like when we were talking about Ocean's Eleven and we just couldn't get ourselves past just, either Danny yeah. Ocean or George Clooney. It's like... <laughs> um, I forgot but, his name was Danny. Anyway. Yeah, obviously, that's the whole point of the train sequence earlier mm. in the film is it's to really piss off Lonigan or, or Shaw's character. Yeah. Um, to make it more a vendetta that he wants to rob Gondry's character of all of his money, not because it's going to lead to them becoming more powerful, but because it's just an ego thing. Right. And it does play into the, and it's spoilers this is right at the end, Robert Shaw being like, oh, I don't need the money. I would, I would just blow it anyway. Yeah. So it's like, the well, that's Hooker's character. Yeah. Hooker. Not Robert Shaw. That's oh. Robert Redford's character. No, but Johnny Hooker's Robert yes. Shaw. No, no, yeah, Johnny Hooker is Robert Redford. Yes, you said Robert Shaw. I did. Yes. Well, I meant I meant Robert Redford. I yes, and you are ha- correct. Yeah, <laughs> and You're... how? Yeah, he he, he very clearly at the end just says, "Well, I don't even need the money." I, it's all about we got the back thrill of the yeah. It's the th- yeah. it's also the thrill of the the sting, the sting. Yeah. Which is sort of what it comes back to. It's like <laughs> it comes back to the best part about these caper films, and now this is the third caper film we've done between American Animals, Ocean's Eleven, and now this film. Surely we've done more than that. Heist films? Maybe not. Not for the title episode, I don't think. Yeah, we've we've done so many now at this yeah. point. <laughs> um, they're the three that come off the top of my head, and they all tackle it in different ways. Um, yeah, exactly. Obviously, Soderbergh uh, does it in... He's doing homages to the 60 heist films, and this one's probably doing a homage to sort of the silent film era mm. in at least the 40s in terms of uh, sort of character construction, I think. But definitely in terms of the music and the title cards, definitely the... Are you saying, Zeke, that film's just one big copy and paste? How dare <laughs> Homage, you? not copy and paste. But, um, I'm really glad you enjoyed this film mm. um, and sort of the acting dynamic between them. Um, I like watching films like this because you can see how even... Act, these two guys are very much uh, actors who are byproducts of the golden age of cinema. Um, mm. In terms of Redford, has now very recently, only a few years ago, retired from acting, and obviously yep. Newman passed away. I think in twenty twelve. I think yeah, I actually just looked it up. Um, actually, was, I think it was two thousand eight. Because you talked about just it being... Just post-Cars. Yeah, yeah, you talked about Cars. Yeah, but he is in, he's sure. actually in a, a couple... Uh, he's in um, a like, few films. Is he like an archive, archive voice sort of thing? Or? I think so. Well, Cars 3 he is. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it was 2008 when he passed. I just... Because I think I was talking to my mum about it. And she asked, like, when did Paul Newman die? But if I recall... Yeah, he's in Road... He's in uh, Road 
to Road to Perdition. Ah, uh, okay. But that's a 2002 film, not a. So, um, yeah, yeah, I think well, Cars. Yeah. I think Cars 2006. Yeah, was yeah, Cars. Yeah. So, okay. And I know Cars Three was they were reusing as clearly voice. like looped. Yes, yeah, and so I think yeah, I think it was around 2006, 2007. Got it right. Yeah. And then obviously Robert Redford is still alive and well, thankfully. You know uh, 2008. You know what? I'm going to call like my mum here. Passed away she, in 2008. Yeah, yeah. She said something last night. I was like, oh, how dare you? She got she got um the names mixed up, but she was watching a movie and she thought that John Goodman had passed away. Because oh, it was John Goodman on the screen. She's like, oh, he passed away. I'm like, what? No, he did not. And then no. she was like, oh, I meant like another John, whoever. John well, Candy or whatever it was. I, I think what I'm saying is they are definitely... Um, so, obviously, the 70s was a really interesting shift where you had the kind of the classic uh, actors, people like Newman and Redford, who were brought up in that sort of big studio life. Mm. So, they were taught to act differently to people like Nicholson and, uh, you know, the more method actors who were another branch that came out of the 70s cinema. You know, things like Pacino and De Niro and... And those sort of, they were one branch of the 70s and the other branch was sort of your classic cinema stuff, which is probably where a lot of the real um, kind of clash came from how the 70s is such a huge difference in types of films. You know, on one end of the 70s, you've got films like this that rake up seven Oscars, but at the same, at not, not what, three, four years later, you have Apocalypse Now. So Right. Well, I think just the breadth and depth was there for filmmakers to to tell such mm. different kinds of stories. Yeah, and I I I like the sort of uh the mixture of the two. There's definitely like I don't think we have that sort of depth uh, anymore. We have we do have like a lot of indie exploration, but obviously mainstream stuff now is n- not nearly as uh profound in my opinion. Okay. I mean, it's franchises. I think, I think franchises are such a big thing now. Well, in terms of the big Hollywood stuff, yeah, it's so it's so franchises. So, you know, what appeals to the the, the Chinese market? What appeals to the general U.S. market? Um, and then in the indie stuff, sort of goes in the other direction where you get your ladybirds and where it's it's stuff that's I want to say overly sentimental, but it's it's stuff that takes itself seriously in a more subtle, nuanced mm. way. And it's like in the middle year, you're kind of losing a lot of the just purely fun films, and this is a fun film from, from yeah. Start and it's to nice to have films like this, and it's um, it's it's rare to catch a film actually just in enjoying itself. <laughs> sometimes now it's either got to be profound or it's got to make money. They're the they're yeah. the sort of the two two ends of the spectrum now. And there's no real middle ground where it's like, hey, maybe a film can just be, you know, two hours of just some highs and lows, but mostly just a lot of fun. Yeah, well, the only films... I'm trying to think of the ones from the last couple of years that are just trying to be fun. And it's like the ones that come to mind are like Guns Akimbo and, and I think it's... true, Not true for their Hide and Seek, whatever the hell that bloody film is called. And I, they weren't good. Well, they weren't mm. great. They weren't great, I'll say that much. Yeah. I think Guns Akimbo is fine. But you're right, like a film that tries to have fun these days... I mean, I guess you had the Ocean's 8 film, but then it, all it is is it's backpacking off of... It's a franchise film. It's backpacking off the Ocean's franchise. Yeah, exactly. It's that nostalgic energy, and, and Ocean's is not a film we consider to be very contemporary today. No. We wouldn't put it up there with the Marvel stuff, for example. No, exactly. So, no. Yeah, you um, lose that, for sure. Yeah, no, obviously we've broken more into the spoiler territory here. Um, it's, it's tricky to talk about, I think... Uh, stuff without it being like oh what was your favorite 
moment or your like mini kefir <laughs> inside this big kefir. Because um, by the end, there's a lot of swerves like back and forth, which is pretty cool. Well, it's interesting you mention that because I didn't really know anything about this film whatsoever until I started watching it. Like I, yeah. I bought the DVD kind of blind and then, and maybe, maybe like a third into what I just started reading the back of it. And it actually has on the back, like, oh, and featuring one of the most, uh, like, the biggest surprise twist in cinema or something like that. I was like, oh, well, okay. So, I'm, so I was kind of expecting, like, an over-the-top, like, oh, Robert Redford turns on, um, you know, Henry or something like that. Yeah, I was kind of looking for something like that. And you get your twists. And I guess a good example would be the girl that he's sort of fishing. Yeah. That's a great one. It's like, oh, shit. <laughs> that's one of those that's one of the darker parts of the film too that's yeah, definitely yeah. like one you definitely don't see coming and I kind of like that though and what was so clever is that almost immediately because you know they try and explain it oh well why didn't why didn't she kill me last night when I was basically sleeping with her and then the guys I can't remember who it was he was talking to he's like oh well maybe she saw a, a witness or something and immediately I flash back to the little the little old lady opening the door yeah. Like, oh, good night. And immediately I was like, that's it. So little things like that where the film doesn't need to flash back. It doesn't need to be like, oh, maybe, oh, that person over there. And that's why she didn't do it. But that's one yeah. of the best parts about the film is it doesn't do any flashbacks. It's all just like yeah, when yeah. something happens or a twist happens, it's like they just say in the moment, yeah, well, we just saw a problem and we anticipated it accordingly. You know, um, Schneider, who's the only actually although a little corrupt as a cop, mm. he's the actual only authority in the film, as you discover towards the end of the film, even though that we've seen that meeting with the FBI people. But yeah, that, that threw was all, me for a minute. Uh, but they're all byproducts of an interaction that Gondry and, and Hooker have when he, after the, the, the chase scene that involves the kind of Charlie Chapman yep, yeah. shenanigans, <laughs> um, that's basically him tells him, he tells him about Schneider and he goes, oh, we have to do something about that mm. and not, Two scenes later, Schneider's being picked up by these FBI guys who are trying to hunt Hooker down. Uh, but it's enough to make you believe that Hooker might be working for the FBI this whole time. Yeah, all the elements are there for sure in terms of explaining. Mm. Like, by the time you get to the end, you're like, okay, this makes sense because of this, this makes sense because of that. Um, but yeah, I wasn't... I don't know... If it wasn't for reading that little tagline on the DVD, I wouldn't have been... I probably wouldn't have expected anything of that sort. And I guess one of the big twists, sort of, is when they both shoot themselves at the end mm. and of course he leaves the room and then, ah, oh, no, they were okay. The whole time was part of the setup, which wasn't surprising, but it was also, that's, I guess that's meant to be one of the big twists. Yeah. At the end. I think it comes back to how many films have now done really big twists like that. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to think about like the legacy a film like this has, um, because you know, you look at things like what Soderbergh's doing with like ocean, the ocean films mm. were inspired by films like this. Like like capers like this. Yeah. That... So you always you're always looking out for that. Like, oh, where's the next clever twist? And How's obviously, the, next twist uh, more uh, clever the further than we this? dive into the decades, Jake, the more we're going to realize that uh, films copy are copy and paste. Are copy? <laughs> well, yeah. But we're gonna be we're gonna be like, man, I've seen this before in something else. You know, I mean, God for God forbid, with some of the I know what we're some of our we yeah, know what yeah. our future polls are going to be. So it's going to be imagine how many overlaps we're going to have. I mean, that's something I always feel bad on when I talk on the show about like, oh, this reference this. It's like, well, I'm always going backwards. It's obviously more obvious to go back to this and be like, oh, this was referenced in this later film. I was like, well, no shit. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think what makes this film such a fun film to watch is actually how 
watertight the caper is because in order for mm. a caper film to be successful you kind of got to plug any potential plot holes and like you said it's like they don't rely on lazy story narrative devices like flashbacks and flashbacks work and they're not lazy in some contexts but in a caper film they are lazy right like if you go well, back well it's a little cheating yeah it's, it's cheating more than it, yeah lazy i'll say yeah okay fine uh, it's like it's like using a crypt sheet yeah because it's like if you basically have to explain something that seemed impossible on the surface then mm. yeah you're just taking that extra step whereas like like you said that's a really good example of that uh, and something i actually didn't pick up on uh, right for some so- reason it just hit me as the second he said it and I was like, oh, props to the film. Like, whatever the film did... The, F- the FBI edit- one's the one that right. I always pick, too, where it's like there's there's everything in the film that is done in the caper is not convoluted. Right. And it's actually seeded earlier in the plot, whether it be just a talking scene. You know, even, like, more simple things, like uh, Joe getting his nose busted by Schneider yeah, yeah. and getting the job because, yeah, he's one of Luther's friends and the caper is really about Luther's revenge. So... Um, you know, it's like little, it's just cause and effect. Mm-hmm. It just respects the basic rules of cause and effect. And it's what makes it a pretty watertight. It's always a good sign when a film can do that, right? <laughs> You'd be no, surprised. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, well, it's funny because one of the other things I noticed in the, the bonus features, this ties into what you were talking about earlier with the whole motivation is to just get back at this dude more so than to make money in that, is the justification for why we're following guys who sort of, you know, rip other people off. But what the justification from the producers and such is, is they only rip off people who sort of deserve to be ripped off. That's the Robin Hood effect. Yeah, exactly. You know, the guy runs in the taxi, I just made the easiest $5,000. It's like... Even though that it was a, you know, a guy bleeding out. That was the first twist. I was like, ooh, I like this film a lot. That was a cool moment. But you're right. It's... If the guy... Like, if the guy didn't do that, if he... I get... mm, that's tricky because like, they just have to assume that he's gonna like cheat on them, and yeah, he didn't. You know, he stands there and lets the guy pretend to rob him. Mm. So that's sort of your first clue that he's you know a bit of a dick. But it's like, what if he actually did go? He's like, oh, I'm gonna deliver the money for this old man. Wait, what? My wallet's gone. Yeah, but that's sort of the <laughs> the eye. Like, obviously, they targeted him for that reason too. Like, they do yeah, talk yeah. about in a ladder scene. They're like, oh, I I just looked at. I looked at where he came from and I just assumed that he wasn't like, I didn't realize he was loaded this much, but right. I, yeah. So they clearly know how to target the right kind yeah, of people. Yeah. That, that kind of, I guess what saves them. Yeah. Is they just accidentally target like some innocent. And person. I mean, and, and full, <laughs> you know, it's really funny, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, Newman and, and Redford's uh, roles in this, but it, like, like you're saying a film like this doesn't make a lot of sense because these guys are con men if the person they're conning isn't a complete and utter tool. And, yeah, well, they have, I mean, to, they have to be worse than our heroes. That's all Robert Shaw, like, and just the yeah. way he delivers it. And can you believe, what, like, what, two years later, he's the the, the captain of the boat that's getting eaten by sharks or whatever? <laughs> like, that's crazy to me. It's crazy. I watched this film before I watched Jaws. So to see Jaws right, after this yeah. and to see him be this, like, salty sea captain who's just, like... It's just really interesting. We're like, gonna what... do Jaws one week for sure. Yeah, there's probably there's probably certain people that are very angry we didn't do it on our poll or whatever. Oh but, really? Uh, I is haven't... that like a fact or you just no, saying? No, okay. I'm just speculating. Yeah, yeah. 
but it's just the way that he like the way he talks he talks really fast he has a very kind of he doesn't care if people can understand him because people were made to understand him even how casual when uh his henchman guy just whispers hey we lost 10 grand he's just like oh don't make a big deal out of it just go kill the guy send a statement but it's so casual yeah, or, and or, even just little things like when when his name's mispronounced, he gets yeah. really upset about it. Exactly. Oh well, yeah. When Newman's like prodding him, and he's like, "You're gonna remember it, all right?" <laughs> and he's just pretending to be drugs. Like, yeah, that's brilliant. <laughs> it's just there's so much to like about this film. It's just so much fun. Yeah, and it's one of those films that, and it and it does annoy me. Like, it annoys me. There's not a Blu-ray version. Like, I saw you purchased. A... There, there is. If you go on like Amazon, there's like yeah, an expensive yeah. one you can get in Blu-ray. But that annoys me. It's yeah. like, what? How does a film that wins seven Oscars not be widely available too? That's also confusing to me. I think. Yeah, you know? but it's like, uh, it's weird now because like even like something this recent at the social network that's hard to get on Blu-ray too, which is so confusing. Yeah, I don't know. I wish there was like a store. I mean, you have your EB Games for games. And you can buy games at JB Hi-Fi, but you can also just go to a games-dedicated store. Mm. And I feel like we don't really have that for movies. You've got Sanity, but even then, mm. that's more music. Yeah. So I wish there was something like that where it's like, you could just go and there's shit everywhere. And frankly, the fact that Fanbase has now closed, I don't know if I've talked about this on the show. I think they've closed. At least their video uh, division is closed. So it's like, I can't go to Fanbase and rent the Steam. Yeah, which is it's, it's a shame. Like I probably will get it on Blu-ray someday, but like yeah, yeah, uh, it's a shame that I have to look to Amazon. And right now, it's probably like forty bucks as all well. All online stuff is just enjoy waiting three weeks for your stuff. So it'll take you <laughs> ten times longer to get it now. nowadays. Yeah, but well, um, I wanted to. I wanted to get the Blu-ray. And I was like, it's definitely not going to arrive in time for this no. podcast. So yeah. But um, um, do you have an, uh, anything else you'd like to add? Um, maybe I'm happy to. Ju- I would just say that the we talked about the title cards or the. Mm. I do like that the names, like obviously they're the names of like each part of the sting or the mm-hmm. operation. I like that they kind of tie in with the act structure as well. Yeah, like you can look at like the hook is like, oh well that's the start of Act Two and it literally comes at the forty minute mark. Just stuff yeah. like that. Wow, that's clever. I it's like a really well paced film too. Yeah, oh, um, it's a great two hour film. Yeah, for sure. So uh, yeah. I guess. Time to obviously big shout out to the music. I love the music. The music is mm. just so simple, but it has slight differentiations, and it's just like it's just nice to have a film that has that sort of like it's so tonally right too. But it yeah, does it, it adds does to have, the playfulness for sure. Yeah, and but in the dark moments, it's you know it still hits the right sort of low sort of layer. Like it's still all motif mm. in like it all. You could if you listen to this album back to back like the soundtrack you you'd get the tone and it's just perfect so big big shout out to that but nice. ready to jump into the highlight scenes right well my highlight scene has to be the poker game which we just mentioned between so henry good. and doyle and others um i just love how tense it is but i also love how you, we talk i think it's hitchcock who talked about you know when the, when there's a hidden gun or there's a gun under the table mm-hmm. you got to find the right time to show the gun before the characters know about the gun. And they do the same thing here with the cards in terms of who's cheating and what cards are... And I'm not a great poker player. I honestly know what I know from Red Dead Redemption 2. That's how I know how to play poker. Um, but when I see it, when I see like, oh, he has four nines, but he has four tens, like that kind of stuff. Like, I kind of know... It was really... But was uh, like, at the end of the day, like, it's it's pretty simplified. Like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they give you enough time to just put 
like they're not trying to break your brain with poker strategies. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's very if you've clear got four and... of a kind, like four of a kind, four of a kind, and then the the one with the bigger number is always going to win. Exactly. Yeah. Although when he drops like four kings, it's like, oh, well, clearly that's it. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, kind of thing. Exactly. You, it's enough that you understand the value, you know, even if you're not like a good poker, mm. poker player. And on top of that, I actually about the scene in particular, I actually hired a dude for the whole film. So his name was John Scarn or Scorn, I think. He was a celebrated authority on cards, and what his job was in the film was to make sure that it's all, the cheating is all accurate, and it's all done on camera. So, if you watch that scene, allegedly, I can't confirm, of course, but every cheat that happens is on camera. There's no editing to hide it. Well, there's a couple, like when he like puts it in the napkin, he puts it under the table, and he like, right, swatches okay. the cut. Everything in that's the best part about this film is every bit of the caper is visually seen, and I yep. really like that. The bit at the start, even when uh, Redford's grifting, when he puts it down his pants, that's obviously yeah. when he's swapping it for yeah, another pack. Two seconds, you're like, that's when he did it. But it's just clever, like, and I really like the show. One thing um, between both films, yeah, uh, I love in this one. Uh, yeah, yeah, the frame composition is just immaculate. Mm. Like every like that that in that scene. In like Redford's there, and he, uh, I'm sorry, I'm um, Newman's. You know, looking at his cards, and and Doyle's henchman is just perfectly framed right behind mm. him. I'm pretty sure that's the thumbnail for the episode. Yeah, and it's so it morning, and it's yeah. so well, like it's so clever because that adds to the tenseness. Because you, mm. his henchman is is well, like he's got a good role in this. He's very visually, and he's got a very distinct look, so you know that that's his number one. And the fact yep. that he's sitting behind him. You know, you know that he could probably look at his card. So, like, the fact that he's holding There's... it up to his chest, literally to the point where he could barely look at it yeah, himself. Yeah. <laughs> I just love it. I'm just like, they just add to that subconscious tension, you know. The other players that are now, like, they start to turn and take a seat back at the table as the stakes are getting higher and higher. Yeah. And, and you, you're sitting there like, oh, God, he's got... He's got it. He's got threes, and then somehow he pulls like yeah. yeah he drops the kings. Like, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess it was Jacks. Like I don't remember, but you're right. It's like, it's like oh that relief moment because yeah. I personally didn't see the cheat happen, but you did, yeah. and then it's obviously this guy here was in charge of making sure it was all but on camera. Brilliant. So yeah, and it's, it's all of it's like it's even the little capers like. They don't have a Western. They don't have a telegraph station, so they go to a Western Union place yeah. and pretend they're painters, and then like close the door, and he takes off the suit. Yeah, he's got a suit under the little switching onesie thing. the photo frame, and it's like Lonigan only steps inside the office for less than thirty seconds, and yet it's enough to just be like it just solidifies the yeah. narrative. This is a Western Union building, like it's just a, the clever fluidity of motion, you mm. know. It's almost like these films, they show and don't tell. Yeah. Oh, look at that. But, um, and the other shout out shot is when, uh, when he's obviously doing the cards. And I love that it, it's such a long take of him actually doing it. And you're like, oh, wow, this is legitimate him playing with the cards and mixing and stuff. But then it does pan up to him, to Paul Newman. And he's like, yeah, that was actually him doing that. That's awesome. And I love that the film's just like, yeah, we got our lead actor to do this. <laughs> so the guy who uh, was the cinematographer for this is Robert mm. Surtees. Also did the cinematography for The Graduate. Oh, well, there you go. I can see that. That's interesting. Uh, Surtees, the same name as the Casablanca dude, almost. Uh, he did, definitely didn't do Casablanca. Yeah, he did not direct Casablanca, I don't think. Um, he did things like uh, the 70s remake of The Star Is Born, Ben-Hur... Uh, that's a big, that's a last big credit show. Uh, the Bad and the Beautiful, Oklahoma. So, so like he, he's got, a, you know, he's got a resume. 
He's got a resume. Good, <laughs> decent resume. So what was your highlight scene, Zeke? It's going to be the final bit. It's going to be that oh, final, yeah, watching sure. it all unfold, and the chaos, and the twists, and and at the end of the day, it really comes back to the only two people they were really against were Lonigan and Snyder, mm. and how they managed to convince Snyder to take Lonigan away, <laughs> and then everyone else in the room is just like, oh, we did There's that. that cheering. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty awesome. I yeah, I always love that stuff. I mean, again, it goes back how far they take the con. And you, and I think you con. really hit the nail on the head with the twenties and thirties sort of camp comedy there that comes with it. The fact that you know, with the music playing, and like at the end of the day, like to convince, it's sort of a Stooges moment where like mm. they convince uh, the you know this guy who is idiotic police officer to take the mob boss away. <laughs> <laughs> and it's got that music where it feels like we're watching like a Hogan's Heroes moment or something right, like yeah. that. It's just it's so good. It's so much fun. It's a great film for sure. Put a smile on your face. Watch the movie. <laughs> now, Zeke, your favourite segment. i got to introduce it back. Now, you tell me, uh, Western Australia, we're opening up big time this weekend. So you told me if you want this to be the last. I think this has got to be the last one, right? Mm. All right, we'll, we'll see how we go with next week's. Actually, next week's film would be very interesting to do with social distance practicing. We'll okay, see. okay. I'll well, make we can, I'll make the decision. You'll make the call. <laughs> I'll let you make the call. Alright, for this one I struggled a little bit, but you tell me what you think. For an example of bad social distancing, I thought it was a scene when Hooker um walks into the diner and just immediately coughs onto the bed. <laughs> yeah, that, was, that was actually probably the best one. <laughs> <laughs> like, dude. I think Newman does it too. He walks in a room. Oh, oh he burps. Oh, he burps, yeah. <laughs> the, the thing, yeah. That would be my bad one. That's great. He burps at the poker table. My good one. This is tricky. So you think about this. My good one is when Joe is covering his uh, beaten nose during the interview because he's covering his mouth and nose, so he's not coughing on anyone. Okay. <laughs> hey, I tried. I liked the uh, the bar that clearly had less than twenty people in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and most of them were seated. Yeah, exactly. So. They were all the, yeah. there that would go. be my good one, I guess. <laughs> this it's get tricky to do a good one lately. Yeah, I don't know. Um, okay, so the sting is out in wide release. Would hundred percent recommend you find a way to watch it. That's the way. Well, I got my friend recommended Just Watch, which is an app where you can find out where everything is. And it's not on stand on Netflix or anything like that. You can rent on like YouTube and Apple and stuff, or you can find the DVD at your local JB Hi-Fi. But, uh, it's a must-watch. Yeah, it's a great film. Yeah, no worries. So, speaking of which, what is new in streaming platforms this week, mm, Jack? This is an interesting week. So hold on to your hat, Zeke. My hat is holding. There you go. Just hit it onto his hair bun. On my hair um, bun. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good bun. <laughs> uh, coming to Disney Plus this week, of course, it's always every Friday they have a big drop. So on June 5th, Seasons 1 and 2 of Howie Mandel's Animals Doing Things, as well as Weird But True. Seasons 1 and 2 of both those shows is coming to the service this Friday. It's a weird name. Howie Mandel's Animals Doing yeah, Things. That's, a, that's, a, that's an odd one. Yeah, I don't, Does that mean they're doing each other? Potentially. Animals having sex? Maybe. There's Maybe. two seasons of that? Each no, ep- each can't, can't say I'm a fan of that one. Okay, that's fair enough. On stand this week, we've got the second season of Killing Eve, uh, the 1960s film, uh, 1960 film Rocco and His Brothers, the Colombian film Fragments of Love, the miniseries Better Man, which I think that came out a few years ago, I think, and they're just bringing it on, the season five premiere of RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars, and the first seven Fast and the Furious films, which I think comes tomorrow, it's a mm. Tuesday. So if you're keen on those first seven, not eight, no. First seven. Fate of the Furious. 
There you go. <laughs> is that? Oh, it is too. The fate of the yeah. Fury. Oh, whatever. I haven't seen. I've never saw the one um, Paul Walker's last one. I never saw it. I did. I watched all six leading up to it, and I just never watched uh, it. I've only watched, I think, just six and seven. That's all I've watched. Really? Yeah. Watch the first two. Watch the first two. Uh, I'll get around to it. <laughs> when <I'm laughs> well, they're all on dead. stand now, so if you're keen, you can jump on those. Uh, before I do Netflix, I just want to do a shout-out for a Screen Australia film, 100% Wolf. Did you ever own the book 100% Wolf? No. It's like a little kid's book, and he tries Can't it out. say I did. I did, but why I wanted to mention... It's available for right now on like, you know, YouTube and stuff. What's interesting about this is I distinctly remember my mate when I was... I mean, I still work there. My mate stopped working in the education department a couple of years ago, but I remember him distinctly auditioning to do a voice for this film. Really? Yeah, and I can't confirm if he's in it or not because IMDb hasn't updated their cast yet. I guess we'll have to find out. I guess I have to rent it to learn, don't I? Wowzers. <laughs> um, but I just wanted to throw that one out there as well. And then finally coming to Netflix, films like Moonlight and Deepwater Horizon come to Netflix, which I'm going to say, you're not going to like me for saying this, Zeke, but I'm going to say, I always confuse Deepwater Horizon for Hell or High Water. Deepwater Horizon, isn't that the... It's new... Mark, Marky Mark. Marky... In the... And it's like a tower and water comes down or something. Oh, like the oil? It's like oh, oil it might one. be oil. But yeah. For some reason, when I heard Hell or High Water, I thought of that film. Ugh. And now I've obviously seen Hell or High Water, so there's that. Oh, that's good. <laughs> At least now you can differentiate Marky Mark from the Marky Funky Bunch. Yeah, Marky Mark from the... Um, the uh, I'm trying to think. Well, that's disappointing. Moving there's on. There's too many good actors in Hell or High Water for me to pick one. Maybe I'll finally watch Moonlight. Yes, you should. It's a great, great film. So that all comes out tonight. So actually, if you log on to Netflix right now, you should be able to watch Moonlight. So there you go. Uh, also coming out, oh, you're going to love this one, Zeke. Seasons 1 and 2 of Keeping Up with the Kardashians and The Real Housewives of Atlanta, Beverly Hills, and New York. That's, that's a, a lot of cities. That's a lot of TV. Yeah. That's a lot of uh, makeup. I think, I think they're separate shows. Yeah. So that's three shows, two seasons of each of those shows, plus Keeping Up with the a Kardashians. Lot of, a lot of makeup. <laughs> so the, the, plastic, ma- the makeup budget, the makeup budget is huge. Yeah, and uh, the so then this Friday the fifth as well, Queen Eye season five, and I forgot about this week. Are you ready? I'm ready. The fourth and final season of Thirteen Reasons Why out this week. Really? Yep, that's it. I think it's the final season. What's I, it about? At the end? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I have to get through it. Oh, you know what? I can look it up now. Maybe I'll cry. No, we'll save it for next week on the show, maybe. No, I just want to read the logline. I don't know if I'm going to watch it, man. No, you have to watch it. I have to watch it. I've yeah, watched you all... You have to do... You, I I tapped out mid-season three. That's true. So, it's your and Jack's duty to come on and talk about it. I can buy that. Um, did we talk, we talked about season three on the show, did we? Did we spoil it for you? Yeah, yeah, I know. I know it kills all that jazz. Oh, okay. All I right. don't care. I'm trying to... You see, the problem is the logline is just the main series logline, so it's still all like... It's probably just one. the fallout, right? Like, trying to hide the fact that who killed Yeah, Bryce. like, trying to cover up what It was happened. Alex. <laughs> well, kind of, yeah. There were a couple of others in there. Well, Zach didn't kill him. Zach didn't kill him, but, like, Jessica was there. That, but that's, why that we, would just be accessory then. Why are we doing this? <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, we're doing it. That's everything. Uh, that's everything that's coming to streaming this week. You can just ignore Well, half we're not those. watching any of those. We most certainly the show. aren't We not. are moving into the 1960s in the Cinema Side Show. Countdown through the decades retrospective. But, Jake, 
Ooh, Who won the poll and what are we watching? <laughs> okay, well, Zeke won the poll again. If you recall, I was very, very salty about losing the are Warriors. Are you salty now? To this a little bit. But I'm also, like I said last week, I'm not surprised. Okay. So my, of course, my vote was Night of the Living Dead. And of course yours. And this was never going to lose. Next week on the show, we're watching 2001, A Space Odyssey. Dave, do you mind if I ask you a personal question? No, not at all. I've wondered whether you might be having some second thoughts about the mission. How do you mean? Rumors about something being dug up on the moon. After discovering a mysterious artifact buried beneath the lunar surface, mankind sets off on a quest to find its origins with help from intelligent supercomputer HAL 9000. Hmm. I'm very excited. It's This is a film neither of us have seen. Yeah. So, as I yeah. said to Jake just off the air, every film in every <laughs> poll... During the commercial break. <laughs> uh, past this point, I have never seen before. So, no matter what That's you guys insane. pick... I'll be going in blind on all of them. That's I'm very excited about that. That's insane. People are going to see the votes from now and going to be like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've all got our blacklist, though. We've got blacklist, but some, some of the ones... Are insane. Honestly, this yeah. is... To me, this has been this second half, because we've now crossed the halfway point. Wow, uh, yeah, we have. Uh, yeah. Is way more exciting, to mm. me, at least, because it's forcing me to watch films that I need to watch. Right, okay. Um, often because our show is obviously normally based on contemporary, we, we do like to go back if we can, but majoritively it's contemporary viewing. Uh, it's films that are new in cinemas. We usually have to catch up, but luckily we didn't have to too much this year. Yeah, obviously, because we've had this block <laughs> and I think it's going to actually work in our favor by the time this countdown is over. Cinemas we... will probably be reopened by the time. Yeah, which will be awesome. And they'll be reopened with a pretty awesome film. But obviously, we'll have to save that for if they actually green light it, right? Because they're debating whether they're going to bring it back. Tenet. What do you mean? Tenant. Well, I know you're talking about Tenant, but what Tenet. do you mean bringing it back? Well, they're not sure if they want to release it in Australia because of just how the cost. Well, that's dumb. It's the only place in the world they can release it. Well, that's it. why they don't want to release it. <laughs> well, that's dumb. I mean, we, that's we, dumb. It comes back to our ethical uh, the debate on... Uh, I, I thought this might be a problem. I've said Maybe. in previous weeks. You know what definitely comes out to Luna as soon as cinemas opens is Dirt Music. No, oh, well, so bloody yeah, we got to go do that, we don't we? we got to do we, that, don't we? That was shot down your, down your street. <laughs> we can't lose to that. But so, until then, this, I mean, this is a big film. This is a huge film. Um, we've done Stanley Kubrick before. We've done The Shining. We've talked about his other films. Yeah, we picked yeah, The Shining as his director's corner. Which I think is not inappropriate. Yeah. This is definitely like the one that would have outdone it. I think Clockwork Orange is his best film so far. Okay, well, maybe I'm going to try and see if I can squeeze that in this week. Ooh, that'd be some good... Because um, I need to bring some more Kubrick in. And, I, I mean, I have some stories that involve this film. Yes, you do. But I'll tell them next week on the show rather than this week. It's very exciting. Until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with 2001, A Space Odyssey. <laughs>